the campus of Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington. You're listening to the G Suite Podcast, where we discuss all things Zach business. Dan Stewart is a professor of entrepreneurship and the director of the Hogan Entrepreneurship Program at Gonzaga University. An accomplished fiddler, business owner, and member of the Spokane Tribe of Indians, Dan also serves as the director of the Indigenous Student Seminar for the Hoover Institute. Welcome to the podcast. We have Dan Stewart today, the director of the Hogan Entrepreneurship Program and professor of entrepreneurship here at Gonzaga. And Dan always loves when I do this. I, I like to tell people that uh, <laughs> Dan's Dan's lifelong dream uh, was was to go to Gonzaga, but he but he couldn't get in for his PhD program, so he had to go to his his second option. He had to go to Stanford instead to get the job done. But but you've come full circle, sir. You're back here in Spokane. What's happening? I did. I finally I finally made it. I had to go the long way, but made it to Gonzaga. That's awesome. That's awesome. Good. How you doing? Good. Yeah. Everything's uh settling in. It's uh the kind of the the part of the semester where I say the the. Professors finally get settled in and hit the groove, and just in time for the students to start hitting the midterm. So life gets good for us and starts to get worse for the students. But oh, truth. that's just how it goes, you know. There'll be yeah. professors someday. So yeah, I always feel like it's just total chaos in September. And I I think a lot of it's everyone's trying to get stuff done that they didn't do all summer, right? But then yeah. you add to that, <laughs> you add to that. You know, just all the student issues of getting settled in, switching classes, and it's it's uh, but it's I agree, it's getting nice now. Things are things are things are uh, cruising along. Um, yeah. excited to talk to you. Um, Thank you for having me. And uh, let's get let me get a little intro on you. Kind of tell tell some of the listeners about uh, who you are, your your journey, your journey uh, uh, to Gonzaga, and however that happened. My journey to Gonzaga, well, geez, how far back do you want to go? I mean, you've already bred off my, uh, half my Vita, so. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I could, uh, yeah, I could, I could tell you how I ended up at Gonzaga. I could tell you how I maybe chose academia as a career. It just depends on let's how much time you want to spend today. Let's, let's start there. <laughs> what, what made you choose academia? Because you got well, to academia. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't start off uh, wanting to be a professor, but when I was an undergraduate, uh, I was studying business and I went into the Native American Center, WSU, and one of the advisors there, <clears throat> you know, and they're, 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 they're good at keeping track of the, the students who were there. Uh, give me a flyer. She just called me in and, and said, you got to take this flyer. You got to look into this program because I had, I've been doing really well. So my grades were really good. I was involved with school and uh, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I was, I was thriving academically and doing well. And she had come across this program by the AACSB. And so most people probably don't know AACSB is the accrediting body for the business schools. So the, the AACSB had started this program called the Minority Summer Institute, where they were trying to fill gaps in the business school world where there were no faculty of color. So they were trying to increase the number of PhDs of color so that we would have more faculty of color. So they had this program that they had just piloted at the University of Michigan. And so I applied to this program and I spent uh, the summer 
I, I think it's right after my junior year. I said in my junior year, I went to the University of Michigan and started taking doctoral courses. So the AACSB had set up this program to introduce you to say, here's what doctoral stuff looks like. And I was amazed because it looked nothing like the business classes I'd taken. The business classes I'd taken were kind of like the business classes you take today. They're very applied, hands-on, they're teaching you things. And I went to Michigan, I was taking these doctoral courses and there was nothing applied at all. So I saw it was a new skill. It was all about research and, and statistics and, and collecting data and how do you write like a scholar. And then in the meantime, while we weren't training, they would constantly bring in professional development uh, workshops that they had set up for us with, with people to teach us what it would like, what life would be like as a, as an academic, as a professor, what the rewards were, what the trade-offs were. And then there were a couple of days where they just brought in dozens of schools just to recruit us. And it was a small, it was, there was only 30 of us at this Michigan program. And so we got a lot of attention. And so it was, it was instilled in me that there was a lot of opportunity and things that cool things that you could do as a professor. So in the back of my mind, I, I left that program knowing that I would someday pursue a doctorate and I wasn't, I didn't do it right away. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of faculty who graduate and go straight through uh, into graduate school. A lot of times straight into their PhD programs. Like a lot of people don't know, you don't have to have a master's to get your PhD. Sometimes you can just go straight through, but I, uh, <clears throat> I had been doing uh, ROTC, army ROTC. So uh, I had to pay back my time. So I went to the army for five years, uh, active duty and that around that third year, you know, they started to kick it into me. It's like, well, you got to choose now. You're going to stay in the army. Are you going to pursue something else? And to be honest, my wife helped me make the call because she didn't love being in the army. Our, our first year that we were married, I saw her four months out of that year because I was just constantly deployed or, or, or training. And so we decided it wasn't going to be a, like a 20 year lifestyle for us that was going to work. So I, I was lucky that I decided that fairly early on and I was able to start, uh, transitioning myself to uh, do something where I could uh, get out of the army and, and have a good, good prospects moving out. So the first thing I did was I uh, asked my, and this is a very unpopular ask. I asked my uh, commanders at the time, can you take me out of the line units? Cause I was in a deployable armor unit. Uh, and can you put me somewhere I can get a job skill? So I was a medical service officer. So I was a, a, in charge of a bunch of medics and, and evacuations. So they said, well, we can put you in a, one of the DOD hospitals. So I got, they transferred me into the largest uh, department of defense hospital uh, that we have in the system. And I became a hospital administrator for my last few years. And uh, you know uh, this will become important later because this is where I learned construction projects. When you're a hospital administrator, uh, you know, part of the things that I got asked to do was I needed to, I needed to remodel clinics. I needed to build new clinics. I needed to, uh, I had to build a NICU at one point. So part of my, part of my job there was managing big projects at, for this, for this hospital, but realizing that I was going to get out in a, in a few years. So when I got out, I, <clears throat> I decided that I would, I would, uh, hedge my risk and apply to MBA programs and PhD programs. And I just got really lucky and I got into all the PhD programs that I had wanted to get in. And I think it's partly because of that University of Michigan training that I had that uh, allowed me to really apply with a lot of knowledge that here's what a good applicant looks like. So, you know, thankful. I'm thankful for the opportunity that other people gave me where I, I applied with a lot of wisdom about what I should say and what I should focus on for my application. So that's, that's sort of how I chose to become a, 
an academic. So, uh, so then after grad school, I, I ended up at, you know, I, I always thought I'd come back to the Northwest. I was targeting schools in the Northwest. Uh, so I always figured I'd be, you know, maybe in Seattle or, or Portland or Eugene or someplace, but I just stumbled across, uh, uh, opportunities in Spokane, which is perfect for me because I'm, I'm from Spokane. I mean, that's part of the story that, that, uh, you didn't mention is that I'm one of the very few faculty, uh, you too, uh, are actually from here. If you look around at the faculty, most are, are not from Spokane. We're just, a, we're, we're a big enough school now. We're nationally and internationally that we, every search we do is national. So it's, it's, it's sort of rare to have faculty who are from this area and familiar with the area. So I, I was really, really fortunate to end up, uh, working back in Spokane and my wife's in North Idaho. So it was, it was perfect for us. Um, so I ended up at, at WSU, uh, WSU Spokane, not WSU Pullman, but <clears throat> right across the river from Gonzaga, uh, which was, which is a good fit for me at the, at the time. And this would have been the early two thousands. They had uh, a few business offerings at the WSU Spokane campus. So, and there wasn't, there wasn't many faculty here. It was me and, uh, I think two others, maybe a finance real estate professor and maybe, I don't know, maybe one other. I, I think there were really only three business school professors that were up here. And I was directing a, a program called the Master of Technology Management. So I guess, and it was maybe unwise to take on a directorship role, you know, just a couple of years out of school, but, uh, you know, I, I knew project management and I'd had a lot of leadership experience. So I did it, uh, but it didn't last very long because WSU, and I think this is the right move on their part, they strategically decided that they were going to focus their energies at WSU Spokane on the health sciences. So they decided that the that Master of Technology Management, which was run out of the business school, would be shut down in Spokane. <clears throat> so my, my dean, my boss came to me one day, called me into the office and said, hey, guess what? We're shutting down the program in Spokane, but we've got a position for you down in Pullman. And that would have been great. I, I like Pullman. My wife's from really close to the Pullman area. And I think I would have done okay there, but there were things going on in my life that I didn't particularly feel like moving. My family had just got settled into Spokane and we had started a, a business, uh, I don't know, maybe a year before or two years before. And I didn't just want to abandon the business because we had just got it going and we found some clients and we were becoming stable. And so I would have been, I would have been fine moving, but I just, it wasn't my first option. So I tried to, I, I was, you know, when you get news like that, you got to collect yourself a little bit, say, well, I'm going to have to go home and I'm going to have to tell my wife and kids like, Hey, guess what? With a smile on your face, we're going to have to move. And so I was just, I just got, I went up for a walk, you know, and I got out of my office at WSU Spokane and, there's a footbridge that goes crosses the river over to Gonzaga and I, I'd never actually been over here. So I crossed the footbridge and said, well, let's go see what Gonzaga is all about. And this is a, this is the summer. Like, so uh, <clears throat> it must've been June probably already. And I don't know if you guys have ever been, uh, well, I don't know if you've been in Spokane or, or Gonzaga in the summer, but it's not back. It's pretty quiet. It's pretty lazy. So I just floating around and I, I walking around and I, and I saw the business school. I said, that's cool. I just want to go see what it looks like. And I walked in and I just walking around, walked up the stairs to uh, the, the second floor. I didn't really know what was up there. It was, it, it's, it's mostly faculty offices upstairs, but I didn't know that. I thought it was maybe more classrooms. So I walk in, there's one guy with his door open and I, 
I looked at his tag and it said Prof assistant professor of management, which was, I was a professor of management uh, at WSU. So I knocked on his door, we started talking and I introduced myself. And uh, it, it turns out that he was teaching exactly what I was teaching as well. And I said, well, I, any, any chance you guys are gonna have any openings anytime soon, just randomly. And I didn't even notice when I first walked in what he was doing, but he was packing boxes. You know, I just was trying to introduce some myself, but this guy was packing his boxes. And so he says to me, he says, hey, that's really funny that you would ask that because they're not too happy with me right now. I just resigned two weeks ago because I'm leaving to go to Virginia Commonwealth. And literally he was going to be gone in two weeks. He said, and they haven't been able to fill my position. <laughs> and so he, it's, it's like, he said, what do you teach? And it turned out we taught it's the same exact thing. And he said, oh, this is, maybe this was just meant to be. So <clears throat> it was just kind of the stroke of luck running into this guy and he had his door open and we taught the same exact things and he was leaving and I needed a place to go. And then the, the next part of it was, well, he said, well, let's just go down and see if the Dean is in like in the middle of summer, the, the odds of catching the Dean in the Dean's office is pretty low. And we walked down to the Dean's office and that's at this time, the Dean was, uh, his name was Bud Barnes. Uh, he'd been the Dean for probably 30 years, but we walk over to the Dean's suite and his doors are wide open. And he's just sitting there behind his desk. It's almost like a light shone down on him, sitting there waiting for me. And he goes, "Hey, what's up, Matt?" And the, the this other professor that I was leaving, and uh, it, it was it was it was amazing. So we, I met the dean that day, and within a matter of I think maybe a week or so, I had a contract and was ready to move over here. Wow! So that's yeah. It was just. <laughs> It was meant to be. It was. I think it was just ordained that I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. yeah, and I, and I love it here. I mean, it's just a. It was a. It was a. It was a transition coming from a, an R1 research school to Gonzaga. I mean, the culture is a lot different at WSU. It's it's really faculty focus and faculty focus on research. And yeah, no students are there too, but you're just really supposed to teach and tolerate the students. You really focus on you. And it's a faculty first culture as long as you're doing research. When I came over here, I was really <clears throat> taken aback by the faculty that are sitting around and their offices are open and students are just wandering in and out. And they, I never had experience in a place where just the students are like wandering in and out of faculty offices and then and, and making conversations with them. And um, but I love it. You know, I, I when I say it, it took me aback, it did, but not in a bad way. It just uh, was was a an adjustment at first say what's going on here and I, I i grew to love it really really quickly so i would i i like this i really love sort of the balanced approach that we have at gonzaga between teaching and research yeah it's 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 interesting and of course i've only been to, been here at gonzaga but we're we're conducting a couple of faculty searches <clears throat> and um in the interview process it comes out that <clears throat> You know, we're a unique place. A lot of other places are, as you said, you're, when we're faculty, you're you're focused on research and 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 pushing that forward. And the students, I don't want to say are an afterthought, but uh, certainly aren't as 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 much of the focus as they are here at, at Gonzaga. So I, I agree, it's a special place for sure. Um, that's awesome. So so okay, so you land, and and I remember that professor because uh, Matt Rutherford, I think he's at. He might be Virginia Tech. You said he's at VCU, you think? Or is it? Yeah. He's either VCU or Virginia Tech. I, I think he was Virginia Tech. Good, good guy. Yeah. Yeah, really good guy. Uh, he was, I think he came out of Auburn and then and I think he was pro probably from Alabama originally and kind of had an itching to get home. Um, um, 
but um which i get i totally understand that so yeah yeah so you so you mentioned your business let's talk a little bit about your business what do you what do you what do you what are you moonlighting as what's what are you dabbling in on the side <laughs> well i'm sometimes i feel like i moonlight here yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> what it is. Uh, so i've got i've got uh, two companies one there's a does commercial construction it's called uh, darden enterprises so we just we build anything that's not residential and I think we're here just hitting 20 years coming up. So I, I think we started in 04. So I think I moved here in 06. So we do we do commercial construction projects in North Idaho and Eastern Washington. Really no desire to go anywhere else. We when we started the company, our kids were pretty young. So I've got a I've got another co-owner. And we decided if we can make a good living without having to travel and bid on projects in other metro areas, Portland or Boise or Seattle or even Missoula, that we we would just do that. And we didn't have aspirations other than really making a good living and supporting our families. And we've been able to make a go of it. And so we're small, we're regional. Um, we don't we don't have to travel. And we're we've done well enough that we're we're looking at uh you know, bringing in the second generation of, of owners soon. So it's been, it's been good to us. And it's also been, it's also been good to me. And I think it's, it's, it's odd to, especially being a professor of management, I don't know if it helped too much if I was a, you know, a sociology or professor or English professor, but, you know, teaching entrepreneurship and management, this is, it's really great to have that day-to-day -day experience out there and as and being able to apply that back into the classroom you yeah. know sharing some of the some of the woes and some of the successes with the students and the student you know the students uh the students like to hear that absolutely and it you know gives a it's a nice uh foot in the practice right i mean we, we certainly get theoretical but you have a you know half your half your time or maybe even more spent in the actual practice the practical side of things which i think well i'm i'm, I'm lucky that i have good staff that help i don't have to be there day to day i'm like i mean i'm lucky i've got good colleagues here at, in the hogan program too so i can i'm able to to be pretty flexible on my time um and the second business because you know this is more on the entrepreneurship side just does investing so we're we do angel investing i think we're in 25 companies or so wow so i see pitches and and it's good that i see a lot of pitches because when you teach entrepreneurship you're teaching students how to do pitches so i can I can knowledgeably say that this is something that you just see in a real pitch. So keep that or throw that away and you'd never want to actually do that. So again, it's, it's just that applied part, I think really helps a lot in our, in our classroom. And I, I always found it odd that more business school professors don't actually do business. One thing I've always said was like, would you want to, would you want to go to medical school and take classes from somebody who ever seen a patient or would you want to go to law school and take classes from somebody who'd never been in front of a judge. This is kind of what we ask business school students to do when business school professors don't participate in business. Um, but that's yeah, and I think you this know, is my own philosophy. When I I, I agree one hundred percent, and when I conversations, I think when you look at Ken's kind of Dean Anderson's strategic vision, and and even you know hearing. Kevin McQuilkin, our executive in residence, who's also a trustee, talk. It's this. This we really need to bridge the gap between, I guess, theory and practice, or what's happening off campus in the business world and what's happening. Uh, yeah. Jepson, 
Uh, and that gosh, that makes a lot of sense to me. I used to try to, I used to dabble a little bit in in, in tax returns, um, and, and it was good. It was helpful. It was difficult for me to be efficient because um, you have to you have to get a lot of volume to make it work, at least on on the tax return side. But yeah. I've, I've done some other things. You know, you, you mentioned angel investing, and I um, I just I'll, I'll share something with you. I uh, I was really fortunate when I was was growing up. My my dad was, you know, uh, I think pretty forward thinking as far as financial. Uh, and, and investment opportunities. And <clears throat> I got my, I got an IRA when I was like 18. Nice. And, you know, we'd, and so I, I didn't know what to invest in. So I just was, you know, this is late nineties or whatever. And I was, I was thinking, oh, I'll go with, let's go with some Seattle companies. So, I, you know, I put it all in every year and just into Microsoft and Starbucks. <laughs> uh, you know, and I don't know what they were trading for back then. Uh, but then I got real, real smart, or maybe not so smart, around 2003, 2004, and, and wanted to, you know, Microsoft and Starbucks weren't going enough up and up fast enough for me. So I uh, I dumped those, and I went all <laughs> oh, in. No. I went all in on a Canadian battery company. They are making these lithium batteries to store energy coming off the wind turbines. And in about nine months, it went bankrupt. So oh, no. I'm what you call, this is this is good. I'm, I'm a resource for you. I'm what you call a counter indicator <laughs> when it comes to investment decisions. Because Microsoft and Starbucks, I don't know if they're like 30X what they were back then. I might be, you know, in a, have a few more bedrooms in my house if I if I would have been smart. But I'm going to have you, I'm going to have you in the guest lecture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if, sorry. if you're thinking about, you know, you want me to come sit on those pitches and you look to me and say, Andrew, what would you do? And you do the exact opposite. <laughs> Yeah, we're called the Brassage rule. <laughs> the counter, the counter do, is do the opposite of that. <laughs> right, right, right. So, yeah, then that's just the, the first of many of my lack of accomplishments. Uh, but um, so, so, so you're here, you're doing management, and but that's not what you're doing now. What are you doing at uh, GONZAGA now? What's your primary role here? Your office, your fancy office over there across the bridge. Oh, well, I'm, I don't know. I, I still think my primary role is being a professor, but I'm a professor in the Hogan program because I direct the, our Hogan Entrepreneurial Leadership Program, yeah. which is, if, you, if people don't know what it is, it's a it's a three-year minor that we have that is, you know, we're kind of housed in the business school, but it's interdisciplinary. So most of our students are not business school students. We're typically around I don't know, a third to 40% uh, business school and quarter from engineering. And then the rest are just <clears throat> random majors from throughout the university. I didn't, so I didn't realize that was, I thought it would have been closer to 80% business, but that's cool. Okay. I and think I it's hard to get in your business because more, more business school students apply, but we purposely try to make the program diverse by disciplines. And so if you're applying from arts and sciences, your odds go up. So yeah, we're, 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 we're trying to put together students who think differently about problems. And so it's sort of resembles a microcosm of what students experience when they leave here and they have to work with people who aren't business school trained. And so, hey, how does an engineer solve a problem? Or how does a, how does a biologist or sociologist solve a problem? Or how do they think about these problems? And so forcing people to work with others that are from different disciplines and different lenses and different viewpoints uh, this I would just think it's think it adds to the richness of the program and the vibrancy of the students on the other end. Yeah, that's absolutely, and and you think about 
because in academia, we have a tendency at times to get a little siloed, right? And we're over here on the edge of campus in Jepson. And um, I mean, what a great opportunity to kind of leverage a variety of, of mindsets and skill sets. That's that's awesome. I, I've always kind of viewed Hogan as kind of the, the honors program within the business school, uh, but not realizing how how broad you were. Um, the, and the, I, so there's think, I think the university considers it one of the one of the its main honors programs that just not for the business school. So yeah. I think the CLP honors Hogan and ROTC are sort of the the big crown jewel programs that get a, a lot of attention. Yeah, and it's to me it's like uh, like these students are they're they're really they're really great students and they're motivated they're smart they're they're and they want to be there because they have, it's fairly competitive to get into the program and so they they realize that it's a privilege for them to be there but I, I it's always a privilege for me to also be teaching them right. um, I, I feel like I feel like uh, somebody gave me these keys to the sports car you know I say like, these are these are students that you can push really hard and they always seem to respond. So that then when I that's why I say sports car like they're just they're just really responsive and and they're great and and they do great things when they graduate. They're I mean they're always leaving here with honors and awards and people ask you said what what do you do in the Hogan program? So well I think we have we contribute to their success, but they're just great students anyways. I think you know these that they're the type of students I think we're going to do great things anyways, and we're I'm just happy that we get to play a part in in, in their success. Right, I completely agree. That's a very, very common Gonzaga story. Uh, we we get good kids. I say that. I mean, they're not kids, but we get we get good students here for some reason. They, they're yeah. I mean, there's 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 an ethos here. You could you could easily choose UW or or Oregon or any any of the big big schools that probably have a higher national profile. But students come here and they realize that there's there's something different to the way that we think and the way that we think about community and the way that we think about social good is a lot different than it is at other universities yeah absolutely so we get, guys, i mean you can self-select into that right 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 and, and your program it, it, you're climbing up in the rankings nationally and nationally isn't that yeah, the hogan program it's uh well <clears throat> I, I would say it entrepreneurship in general which oh, is okay, gotcha. important like so entrepreneurship at gonzaga yeah we've been ranked at us news at the last in the in the top 20 or 25 for the last four or five years. So it's nice to get that, that recognition. And Hogan plays a, a major part in that. Another other part of that is we also have an entrepreneurship concentration that's in the business school. That's just for business school students. Uh, and it's, it's, to me, it's uh, kind of yin and yang. I always tell students when they're asking about entrepreneurship, I, I, I don't tell them that Hogan is better for them or that the entrepreneurship concentration is better for them. I, I'm not going to say that, that, because that's exactly what I tell them. Say so one is one is going to be better for you. I'm not going to say that any. Of the, I'm not going to say that either program is better than the other. It's just they 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 have different needs and different missions. So I can usually talk with a student and I can tell where they'd be a better fit. So I'll either encourage them to apply to Hogan, or I can say to them, Hey, for what you want to do, uh, you should just take the entrepreneurship concentration because that's it's more suited to what you want to do so the entrepreneurship concentration in the business school because it's in the business school you end up taking a lot more core business courses so if you want to study the nuts and bolts of of a startup then that's probably a better option the hogan program is really a leadership program that 
it's sort of embedded in, in entrepreneurship. We use we use entrepreneurship, but as a lens to really teach students how to become better leaders who understand innovation and change. And I don't I don't really tell this to them all the time, but I always tell the the other instructors, I tell the adjuncts that our mission here is we're not creating people who are going to do startups. We're creating change agents. So every student who comes out of the program should be able to go, and if they're going to become an accountant or a scientist or an engineer, they're going to be a better accountant or scientist or engineer because they understand how change works. They understand how to pitch change and to sell change and to lead people through change. So no matter what career you go through, maybe you're not a startup entrepreneur, but you're entrepreneurial. And because you're more entrepreneurial, you're a change agent and you're, and you're a leader. And that's the kind of students that, that we want to have go out the other end. It's honestly, it would be uh, irresponsible of me to ask them to go do startups right out of the program. The students are, uh, I think last year, they're 100% placed by graduation, either into big four accounting or management consulting or into high, you know, high caliber grad schools, like either European grad schools or had one student go into a Stanford medicine. So they're, they're doing and had a couple go to law school. Like I can't, I can't really look them or their parents in the face and say, say, I, I would discourage you from doing that. I, you should just go to a startup. You know, that's, that's right, right, irresponsible. Right. Like their opportunity costs are, are too big. So I, I tell them uh, what usually happens with their graduates is they don't become involved with entrepreneurship right away. They're entrepreneurial, but they go out and they find some skill sets and they find an industry uh that they like and so they get some expertise but if you look at their linkedin profiles and you follow them five to ten years out they almost all some sort of come back to the entrepreneurial world in some some respect yeah and it's i mean you can be entrepreneurial in so many different capacities right i mean even yeah. even if you're in you know medical administration right yeah you can you can create yeah. well professors professors have to be very entrepreneurial you have to know your own project you have to start your own projects figure out how to fund them and figure out how to resource them and uh and that's part of it and that's something you would get from from either program but with our program since we focus a lot on leadership and ethics and sort of a little higher level things we don't and we don't we don't have enough credits in our program to sort of push you into some of those more core business courses. So you're not going to get a dedicated course in say, you know, marketing or operations or MIS, the same way you would if you took the, the entrepreneurship concentration. So, you know, if you're going to be a business major and want to do entrepreneurship, but the ENI program is a great, great option. Yeah. Also have, also have really great students. And, uh, and I know because we have part of the Hogan program is we have, we have something called the new venture lab, which is a student run consulting club. So every semester we'll bring in 10 to 12 outside businesses who have projects that they that they want students to work on. And so we'll have around 60-ish or so students that we'll bring in from across campus, from across majors. And the students run those engagements. We don't run the engagements for them. They're, they're, we, we pair them up but we, and we kind of, we supervise them through the process to make sure the projects don't go astray and they don't do anything to damage the university. But when we say student-run consulting, it really is. We employ three students part-time, and those are usually Hogan students, uh, seniors and juniors, to run the new venture lab. But those students then go out and recruit team leaders. And the team leaders they recruit tend to be from just all over campus. And a lot of them come from that entrepreneurship concentration within the business school. And uh, uh, they do great. They're To me, they're, they're great students. Yeah. And 
and the cool part, and then those team leaders, they get it, you know, they get it supervised, you know, three, four other students beneath them. And it's kind of cool. Kind of cool to see the, those students run that, run that program. Yeah. I mean, you, you definitely, you definitely have the superstars. That's for sure. Uh, that's crazy. We'll, we'll shift, shifting gears here a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> you, 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 you write books on occasion. You can maybe have a, or at least, uh, you know, are involved with a knowledge base. Go ahead. Yeah. So you got a couple of books. What, 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 let's talk about those a little bit. Okay. Well, they're, they're probably not for the general reader. They're for me and my passion because I'm a, I'm a Spokane tribal member and I've just, I've, I've seen the lack of economic development and business development generally in Native American, Native American tribes. So one of the things I've always been interested in as an academic is economic development in Native American communities. Uh, just, you know, just realizing that there, this is not, if you grow up in a Native American community, you don't, it, it's very rare that you grow up and say, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to start a business. It's, it's more typical. Hey, you need to be, you need to go be an educator or learn health sciences, or there's a bunch of other careers that are, uh, I guess, prioritized over, over business. So we don't have a lot of business trained people um, in Native American communities. We have people that are doing businesses, but they don't tend to have a lot of formal training. So part of, and that's something I've always wanted to address. And uh, I've been fortunate that uh, to be a place like Gonzaga, where they allow me to do work like this. It, it, it's such a, it's seen as such a, such a niche topic by some people. And as maybe I would say some people even see it as, as not as important as other topics. So uh, <clears throat> to come here where I have a Dean that supports that kind of work and a school that supports that kind of work has been a real uh, blessing for me. But I've also been I've also been able to create a good network of other academics who are interested in these issues. And there's not many of us. So when we find each other and and we all have a passion for it, you know, we work and we collaborate together pretty well. So I've been able to uh, be at the forefront of a couple really sort of leading edge books, texts around this issue. For sure. And I, I actually have two. Oh my gosh. I have both cop on my shelf. I have both copies uh, signed, signed by the. Uh, <laughs> you can oh, wait, you didn't sign this one. You didn't sign this one. I'm going to have to get you, you can eBay for 99 cents. Yeah. The American Indian <laughs> Business Principles and Practices. This is the signed one. Yeah. I'll uh, buy them back for $1.50. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then Creating Private Sector Economies in Native America. Sustainable development through entrepreneurship. So, and these are these are collections of of essays or uh, of articles that you guys edit and and kind of. Um, yeah, it's a it's it's a peer reviewed uh, volume. So I'm kind of like the basically the editor of the of the volume. So we you know we had well solicit contributions and then we have to edit them and then work with the with the publisher. One's from UW Press and then the second one's from uh, Cambridge University Press. So it's a, I, I did learn a lot about, I mean, I, I'd contributed book chapters before and that's part of what you do. You write journal art, peer reviewed journal articles, but I also had done a few chapters as well, but I've never seen it from that end. So I don't know, it's probably 10 years ago we actually started on that, that first text. Cool. Well, it's cool. Well, in addition to that, in addition to, to hanging out in Spokane, uh, you go, you head down to the farm, down to Palo Alto uh, every once in a while. 
uh, and you're you're uh, kind of tell me about your role in the Hoover Institute and 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 what goes on. I know you get to hang out with a lot of cool, smart people, uh, and I'm super jealous. <laughs> I'm super jealous. Con you get to hang out with Condi Rice. I'm pretty jealous about that. So good. Yeah. So as part of my work with the writing on Indigenous communities, well, I think when I first started writing, it was really more business and around business school professors, but I ended up, uh, uh, I was invited to a think tank in Bozeman called the uh, what Property and Environment Research Center. And this is, this is way early, this is way early 2000, but I was invited to this think tank and I got, one of the people there was a, is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And uh, he'd been working on sort of some indigenous economics issues. Actually, he was, he's so he's a, he's not he's not native, but he'd been writing on these issues. Uh, I don't know, probably a decade before I met him. And he was, you know, putting together programs. And he had he had a pitch out to the Hoover Institution to to uh, start a new program, and it ended up being funded by the the Maytag family, Maytag Foundation. And so they 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 sponsored this program called Renewing Indigenous Economies. And it's not just focused on Native America. There, it's 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 global indigenous economies. So our work there focuses on Native Americans in the U.S., First Nations in Canada, uh, Maori in New Zealand, and uh, Aboriginals in Australia for the most part. But we also focus on Central America, South America too. But those are the sort of the four primary groups that we uh, focus on. So it, it started off as as it's just purely research. Um, um, gatherings where people would come share their research, but uh, I pitched the idea. It's like, why don't we do something for students as well? And so they made me the director of their student uh, indigenous student seminar. So I'm I'm lucky that I've got resources from Stanford to go out and put together a seminar that we'll meet, we'll meet multiple times a year. Uh, so I'm down there, you know, a couple times a year to do this seminar but they allow me to go recruit and the students they really they come from all over the world like last my last uh session uh, like around 30 students i think seven of them came from new zealand we had a handful from australia that that would that flew in we like maybe <clears throat> of the remaining maybe half of those were from america and the rest from from canada so i feel like it's really pushing me to grow and, and explore the way that that the issues surrounding Native American economic development have a lot of parallels with the other indigenous communities throughout the world. And being able to, to talk with leaders and students from these other uh, communities is really interesting the way I and other people think about uh, the issues at home. So it's, I, it's been sort of a, a really fruitful cross collaboration to be able to make this thing go, go global. And it's, it's, and you know, it's 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 also a pleasure to go back to Stanford a couple times a year and and right. teach them. Yeah, and you know they <laughs> their students will they'll push you really hard. So, but they're like me. They're they're students who have grown up in or been around communities where they've seen how desperate the situation is on some of the reservations and how how much we really, really need to have economic development and opportunity brought into the people. Uh, and so there's an urgency 
their especially with the students like some of the faculty this is like a side project for them and they don't feel the urgency so sometimes there's a tension between the faculty it's like oh this is just like an interesting thing to me and and then the students like no it's not an interesting thing this is this is this is critical and vital to what we're doing this is our people that you're talking about so it's not just interesting but it's 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 core to what they're what they're doing so those students tend to be not only do they come from across the world there's very few business majors. I get a lot of law students, political science majors, uh, a lot of people from social sciences and economics. So <clears throat> again, it's one of those things. It's it's constantly pushing me to adjust what I teach and how I teach because I have to I have to adjust my teaching then to students who are older than what I usually have at Gonzaga and from a way different intellectual background as well. Yeah, that's well. I mean, I. And, I, and I've, I've done that as well. And obviously in my, my very narrow accounting world where I, I used to teach continuing education for firms and and it, it's an adjustment. It's, and it's, you have to kind of put yourself in the student's seat and, you know, where are they coming from? What do they want out of this? Um, and it's, yeah, it's a lot. I think a lot of people that aren't involved in teaching will think it's so easy. You know, you, you know, you know, we just sit there and read all day. And so we have, some level of knowledge just walk up and do our thing but it's 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 it, it takes a lot of energy and and like you know i'll come out of class and i'm actually pretty exhausted right so i'm trying to keep the energy up for people to be engaged and if you if you do it well it takes a lot of energy it's it's, it's physically demanding to do a good lecture if you just want to cash it in and do a lazy lecture you probably float by but you're not that kind of person so i think that's that speaks about you that you come out of the classroom feeling probably a little bit tired and energized at the same time from the energy you get from the students yeah absolutely absolutely very well well put now i see i see in the background behind you there there's a there's a fiddle it's a pretty cool looking kind of modern yeah. modern fiddle scenario here it's not a, it's not a it's not a real violin it's a it's electric so it doesn't have a body wow. you just plug it, you just plug it in like you would plug in uh there it is an electric guitar but i keep it here because it doesn't make any noise like that's as, as much as you get out of it. Oh well, yeah. I brought it in so I I could practice once in a while because my my hobby is playing fiddle music, and so this allows me to I guess play some fiddle music and not bother too many people. <laughs> Wait, Plus, you, how'd you how'd you get into the fiddle? Like growing up or like what? How, you know? Yeah, I've been I've been playing violin in the school system, and then. I had gone to a, I was in 4-H as a kid and I went to take some animals to one of our local fairs and there's a little town south of here called Rockford. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. The Freeman School District. And so they, they had a fair there. So I was taking some animals as a 4-H kid to these fairs and there was this group of old time fiddlers that got up on the stage and played. And having been in the, in this, the orchestra schools in the school system, I kind of knew what I was hearing, but I, I was really intrigued by what they were doing because I liked the sound of it and they weren't reading off music and they looked like they were having a lot of fun. So I just told my parents, I, I want to try that. And as it turns out, there was a guy that was running a, a his name was Frank Wagner, and he was running a free fiddle workshop for kids every wow. week out at one of the schools out in the valley. So I just started going to this free workshop to get to get started. And I was, I was, that's a long time ago. I was, I think I was 10, 11 years old. Wow. I got hooked and I've been doing it ever since. So 
That's so cool. And you go to and you go to Weezer, Idaho for the big uh is there like a big annual gathering for Yeah, that's the Nas- National Old Time Fiddle Contest is uh in Weezer, Idaho every year. So I used to go. I don't I don't miss it very often. Do you, so do you have do you know fiddle people like out in Kentucky and down in Florida or because I imagine Weezer draws from everywhere. Well, you know, Weezer draws it it it's mostly the Northwest, the people who show up there. Sure. But there's a lot of fiddlers from especially Texas and, and parts of the South. So you'll you'll get a you'll get a hand, you'll get you'll get a lot nationally, but it is sort of uh, I don't know, I'll say most of most of the fiddlers who actually make the trip are from the Northwest. But you do get it you do get to meet a lot of great fiddle players on the national scene. So I'm so I'm just thinking here, because so I've known you for twelve years. And I had to invite myself to your house for the first time. I finally got you to agree to my myself invite to your house after about six years. I've never heard you play fiddle. Uh, so sometime I'm gonna have to we're gonna have to remedy that. Uh, it was hanging know. on the wall that day. She just asked me to play it. <laughs> I'm gonna I'll bring in my tambourine and we can do a little duet. You know, I'm I'm pretty good at the old tambourine. So oh boy, thanks for contributing. That's <laughs> <laughs> a bluegrass instrument, right? We'll take it, we'll take it. Well, what one more question for you here? Uh, and you know, I I I work with you. I watch you a lot. I admire you. You do a fantastic job. Um, and I know want to thank you. And I and I know that you know one one thing you do a lot of is is mentor students. I think it's come out with some of the comments you've made today. Um, what's the what's the most common or that one piece of advice uh, you want your graduates to know as they embark on whatever the next journey is uh my advice would be don't turn down opportunities i think students come sometimes they get a little narrow and like they have a vision for what they want to do or to happen but there's there's a there's a concept called path dependence i don't know if you ever heard of path dependence but path dependence says wherever you stand today is a result of steps you took you know five ten steps ago and so there's whatever, whatever choice you make today influences the path that you're on eventually. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so cliche when you hear people say, well, find something that you're passionate about. Yeah. Well, most people are 21, 22 years old and they graduate aren't super passionate about really anything. They haven't found professionally something that they're going to be passionate, passionate about. But when, when I say don't, don't turn on opportunities, I say, because opportunities, even if they're not what you had envisioned for yourself, they influence you later in ways that you can't predict. Like me going in the military, somehow learning construction management. Well, that influences the path I'm on today, having a construction company. Me deciding to go ahead and apply to something for in, as an undergrad that introduced me to uh, PhD programs and doctoral studies, even though I had never considered, I didn't want to be a professor, but I took it, I just, look at those opportunities as well. They're not what I envisioned for myself, but let's try them out. And those things kind of influencing you and they influence what's possible for you later. Everything that you do informs what you're able to do later on. And the broader set of things that you try and experiment with, the broader the set of skills that you bring to any organization that you want to be part of. And I guarantee if you apply yourself and you try enough things broadly and, and, and pursue enough opportunities, you will stumble across that thing immensely in your life that you're passionate about. So, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to 
I'm not going to dumb it down by saying something simple, like just go find something you're passionate about. It's not that simple. Finding something you're passionate about is, is part just good fortune, but it's part of the hard work you put in, uh, trying and experimenting with new things and, 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 and taking advantage of opportunities that are given to you, even though you don't necessarily think they align right at that moment, the alignment comes ironically later. Yeah. Uh, that's well put. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I mean, you have to do something you like doing and you want to pursue, but I think oftentimes it gets that gets interpreted of, oh, I'm going to go do something passionate. Like you're passionate about the fiddle, right? But you didn't you didn't pursue that as a profession. You know, there are things you can do as hobbies as well, right? It's kind of this this marriage of it's got to be practical, practical. It's got to have the impact you want. You got to like what you're doing, but you know, it's also got to pay the bills on some level too, or at least, uh, you, know, keep well, I mean, you, just, you just know how your career is going to pan out. Like when you were studying accounting, you probably didn't envision say, say, Hey, one day I really want to be a director of accounting programs right, at a major right. university. Like, like that doesn't cross your mind, but when you stumble into it, because you've set yourself up for that with previous opportunities, then it's something that you're there. It's like, Oh, I really like this. I'm really passionate about it. So yeah. it's, you end up passion sometimes finds you, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, man, I, this has been absolutely outstanding. Uh, I, I appreciate your time today. Uh, thanks for joining us. Dan Stewart, everybody. So I will, uh, I will charge you a beer later. That sounds good. <laughs> See you, man. Thank you for listening to the G Suite Podcast. This episode was produced and hosted by Andrew Brasich and edited by Jack Talbot. To find more G Suite and many other podcasts on the Gonzaga Podcast Network, remember to check out gonzaga.edu slash podcasts. Thanks again.